with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to read verses 25 through 40. And we're going to attempt something that's probably impossible, which is to expound all these verses this morning. But let's give attention to the holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Begin with verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as those they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, that he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is unconcerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, that the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this morning that the sum of all of your words is truth. And because that is so, quicken our hearts to the power of your Holy Spirit to understand these words and to delight in them and to be nourished by them and to hear Christ in them. And may he feed and bless our soul now through this preached word. This we ask through Jesus, our great high priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure most of you all are familiar this morning with those most famous words of Shakespeare in the play Hamlet, to be or not to be, that is the question. If I could just sort of use that phrase, and I realize it's a bit 
cheesy sounding, but if I could use that phrase and adjust it just a little bit, it'll help us get a, a fine point, really, a fine edge on the issue that the Apostle Paul is confronting here in verses 25 through 40. It sort of will help us tie the threads of the passage together. And here's the big idea. The Apostle Paul is addressing this question. To marry or not to marry? Should you marry or shouldn't you marry? That is the entire question that Paul takes on here in these verses. But what I want us to understand as we think about that question, to marry or not to marry, we have to understand the context in which this has been posed. Now, first of all, if you look at verse 25, uh, you'll notice these two words, now concerning, and you say, big deal. Well, it is a big deal because if you study out the book of Corinthians, you will notice that in a number of places, the Apostle Paul uses that particular phrase. And we walked you through those a few sermons ago, and I don't think it's necessary for us to do that this morning. But what that indicates to us is that the Corinthians have posed this question. It's not that the Apostle Paul has decided in cold blood to sit down and and to give the Corinthians a series of principles that they ought to consider as they think about the topic of whether they should marry or not. That's not the issue. The Apostle Paul is addressing the question that they put to them. Second of all, the Apostle Paul is addressing this question in relationship to a very specific situation. And that situation is spelled out in verse 26. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. Mark those words. The apostle is answering the question of the Corinthians about marriage and whether to enter into marriage in the situation that he calls present distress. And I'll just tip my hand here at the beginning and say that I believe it was something local. I believe that it was something temporary. I think that it was something situational to Corinth, and I'll make my argument for that in a moment. But you have to bear that in mind as you approach this chapter so that you don't sort of woodenly and literally lift off uh, these commands and these principles and apply them sort of abstractly to our own 21st century situation. We will do that. But we have to do it properly. There's not an exact one-to-one correspondence because Paul is addressing a particular problem in a particular situation. Uh, The other thing that I would have you notice about what Paul says here in verses 25 and following is that he calls it pastoral advice. A very fascinating here. He says, not I, or rather not the Lord, but I say this. And then he goes on to make it clear that the Holy Spirit is leading him to give sanctified pastoral wisdom and counsel to the Corinthians. We need to bear that in mind, too. And why not, since we're throwing in all these qualifications this morning, uh, one more is in view. And, And that is the fact that he's writing to Christians. And that's important for us to consider here. Uh, Because really, the rest of this message this morning is going to sound an awful lot like law. And that's okay. 
Because there's law in the Word of God, and we need to hear God's law, and we need to receive His instruction. But I want us to bear in mind that this instruction is given to Christians. It's given to the kind of people that he greets in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, To the church of God, which is at court, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, the one who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who he thanks uh, on behalf of God that they have received grace, the ones that he says have been enriched in everything in Jesus Christ, uh, the ones who have uh, uh, received the gospel proclamation of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, effectually and under their salvation. You see, what the Apostle is saying here is the Christians. And the obedience to these commands flows out of grace. Very important to bear all of those things in mind. And I think I've given you enough qualifications so that we can begin to dig into our passage this morning and see what it has to say to us. And we'll begin here, uh, verse 25 through 28. And the first principle, and we'll show how to draw this out from the passage, but the first principle here is that marriage should be contracted only after giving careful consideration to the circumstances. Marriage should only be contracted after giving careful consideration to the current circumstances. Now, as I've already indicated here in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says a couple of interesting things. He says uh, he is speaking about the situation of virgins, that is, uh, unmarried women. I'd say that's particularly and specifically who he's speaking to here. He says, I have no command of the Lord. Now, that's a sort of fascinating insight that the Apostle Paul gives us here because it seems that he assumes that there is some record of the words of Christ. Now bear in mind that the book of 1 Corinthians is written in the middle 50s. Uh, just over 20 years after Jesus has died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And that's very fascinating because what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he is aware of a written record of the words of Christ that he would normally appeal to to figure out what people are to do under certain circumstances. Very fascinating point. Runs completely contrary to almost all modern criticism of the Bible, which we can just throw out the window anyway because it's unbelieving. But at any rate, what uh, Paul says here is that he is searched through the words of the Lord and basically he can't find any command pertaining to this particular issue. So he says he's going to be led by the wisdom of God to talk to them. And so he begins to provide pastoral advice. Noticing now in verse 26 that the advice is given to a particular situation. Look at your Bibles with me at verse 26. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. That Paul says here, you need to remain just as you are, in view of the present distress. What we need to key in on here are those two words, present distress. And there's a couple of ways of looking at that. Uh, there is uh, one way, and by the way, scholars are divided on this, so if you have a study Bible and you read that your study Bible, or you look up a commentator later on this afternoon, and they have uh, a different view, it's because there are basically two views on this phrase. 
And one of the views on this phrase is that Paul, and I've already indicated this, is, uh, is thinking about a situation that is local to Corinth, specific to Corinth, and is a great difficulty to the Corinthian church. Also a great difficulty to the broader Corinthian society. In fact, it's so dramatic and so difficult uh, and so trying that the Apostle Paul is saying, under these kinds of very difficult circumstances, it would be better for you not to get married. Uh, some people speculate that it was a famine. Other people speculate that it was some sort of intense persecution that was being inflicted upon the church and upon the Jews at that time. That's highly likely. We simply just don't know. However, we do know that the Apostle Paul knows, and that's why he's addressing them in this particular way. The other opinion on this verse is that the Apostle Paul is referring to the events of tribulation preceding the second coming of Christ. Now some people would say that the Apostle Paul is saying in view of the fact that Jesus may return imminently and we know additionally that right before he returns there is going to be tremendous and great tribulation throughout the whole earth that it would be better if that's the case for no one to get married because the times before Jesus Christ returned will be so tremendously difficult that no one would want to have a wife or family under those circumstances most likely. Now, that's an interpretation of this passage that many people buy into. I'm going to argue this morning that that's not the, that's not the, the uh, interpretation I would take. I, I'm fairly persuaded that present distress refers to something local. And one reason why I would argue that is that word distress is never used by the Apostle Paul in connection with the events preceding the return of Christ. It never refers in Paul's usage to any of the distress or any of the tribulation that may come before Christ's return. That is a powerful point, it seems to me. If Paul never uses the term that way, then it would seem that we should have some caution. Secondly, when Paul uses this particular word, distress, he uses it with this sort of connotation, either compulsion, compel, or something like that. So it wouldn't really fit the circumstance of tribulation. And then thirdly, the Apostle Paul says here that the distress is present. He says it's already here. It's here right now. And if that were the case, Paul was wrong about Jesus' imminent return right there in his generation. Because we know it's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter and Jesus has not returned. Uh, So I think it would be best to take this phrase to refer to the current circumstances. And what he says in view of those difficult circumstances in Corinth, whether it be famine or persecution or some other generic or general form of distress, he says it's better for a man to remain as he is. Now he expounds on what that means in verses 27 and 28. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then he goes on to say, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And then he goes on to say, But I wish to spare you trouble. 
Now, it's very clear from this what the Apostle Paul is saying is that uh, he is not privileging one status over the other. He's not privileging one decision over the other. He's being very fair, very uh, even-handed here in his assessment of the situation, of the circumstances, and the troubles that could emerge out of it. And what he says, based upon that, is that you're not sinning either way. But he says, as a practical concern, I would rather spare you the difficulty of going through that. And by the way, he's not referring to the typical trials and tribulations of the married life when he says that. He's really talking about the great concern that he has for people who enter into marriage and together they experience this community-wide set of tribulations. It's very clear he doesn't forbid the marriage. And so now, as we come back to this question, and we ask, well, what principle then is embedded in this admonition here? What principle emerges from this advice that he gives to the Corinthians in their particular situation of distress? And he says, it'd be better, it'd be smart to stay as you are. But then he weaves his way through the question, first of all, he says, but it's not sinful to do that. What, what principle emerges from that? Well, I would say, first of all, if the Apostle Paul would go into such in-depth analysis of the situation, and that he would spend so much time thinking it through with the Corinthians and talking about uh, the potential difficulties, conflicts, pitfalls, and trials, that at least this comes to my mind, is that before people enter into the marriage contract, Uh, they probably ought to give great consideration to the particular circumstances they may face as a couple and see whether they are going to be able to make it through those circumstances. You know, if you go into marriage as a young couple and you realize that the only way for you to make it financially as a couple is that both of you have to be working 16 hours a day, 6 days a week, you may reconsider the timing. If you are entering into marriage and you know that you may lose your job imminently and uh, you may be driven into great financial crisis, you may reconsider the timing of getting married. If you know you're headed off to graduate school for three more years and it's going to take all of your ability to concentrate and to think your way through the intense academic rigor of the situation, you may be wise to not get married at that particular point. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The present distress is not going to last forever, and what he's saying under these circumstances is, uh, is think about the situation. Count up the costs. Count up the costs. And there's an additional uh, thing I would say emerges here, and we could almost plug this in anywhere, and that is about the business of seeking advice. It's about the business of seeking advice. And, and what you could say here about these Corinthians uh, with this question is that they're doing something very commendable. They're doing something very commendable. They're looking at their situation. They're realizing that it's fraught with difficulties. They're realizing that they are inexperienced in the Christian life. They are realizing that they need some advice and, from, and some help from somebody who has a little bit more seasoning in the Christian faith. They realize that they are before a a particular decision that will have life-altering consequences and implications for them. And what do they do in that kind of a situation? They model a certain kind of behavior that we would all uh, 
in wisdom heed and try to follow ourselves. And that is consult people who are known for having wisdom. I think that is a a general principle and admonition that would flow from uh, Paul's exposition here and his set of admonitions. When we're making momentous life decisions, we'd be very wise to stop and to consult the people who are around us who are known for wisdom. And if we're younger in life, that probably means that's not our peers. My grandfather always used to like to say, and I'm pretty sure I agree with it, that you don't know anything until you're 40 years old. So it would mean that for many of us, if we're encountering a momentous, life-changing situation, that we should find safety in a multitude of wise counselors. That may be your pastor, it may be the elders of the church, it may be family members whose lives are are known for their order and responsibility, it may be uh, people who are advanced in years who show by their life that they have been through struggles and trials and hardships, but they've done in such a way that reflects the fruit of wisdom, these are the kinds of people that we'll want to be talking to. And the other thing that I might add here quickly, even though I believe that it would be extremely wise for us to consult people uh, who have that kind of wisdom, remember at the end of the day, you are fully responsible for any decision you make based upon the wisdom that you draw from others. You see, Paul here holds these Corinthians responsible for the decisions they make. He leads them by the hand, as it were, through the complexities of the situation. He says, this is what you may encounter, and I want to spare you this, that, or the other thing. But at the end of the day, he says, you haven't sinned. You have to make the decision for yourself. And you have to live with the consequences. Very important for us when we think about receiving advice from people who are wise. Be sure that you are aware that you're accountable for the decisions that you make. And so Paul would, first of all, if we're thinking about the situation of getting married, Paul would say, well, make sure, make sure that you evaluate the circumstances very carefully. Second of all, here in verse 29 through 31, the Apostle Paul gives us some general directions about our approach to marriage. Our general directions to approach to marriage in this particular age. And basically, if we could summarize the admonition that flows out of 29 through 31, Paul is saying, consider the transitory nature of this age. Look with me in your Bibles again, verse 29. He says, But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened. Now I'm going to argue that in this particular case, Paul steps out of the local situation and he places it within a broader perspective. He says the time has been shortened. Jesus Christ has come. That marks the dividing point of history. It marks the inauguration of the kingdom of God in space and time. And it means that we all now ought to be anticipating His return. The time has been shortened, he says. And in view of that, the Apostle Paul says, there is a general way for all of us to live. And he gives us uh, those instructions here in verses 29 through 31. He says, From now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. 
As those who weep as though they did not weep. As those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Why? For the form of this world is passing away. That language, by the way, there at the end, which gives you the reason for why you're to act in this way, is found in 1 John as well. The form of this world is passing away. What's it saying? It's saying that this age here is temporary. It's coming to an end. And not through global warming. It's coming through an end because Jesus is going to return and He is going to stamp a a period at the end of this long sentence of history and say, I'm returning and now kingdom come has arrived. But look at the directions. I mean, you read these and you say, man, Paul, that... That sounds really heavy. A person who is married is to act like he's not married. Now that could get a little dicey if we take that out of context, by the way. Uh, What he's not saying is to go live as if you're an unmarried man. Uh, Again, that points to us that uh, when you read these things, you have to really consider the context. You have to evaluate very carefully. You know, as he even says the following things, as those who weep as if they, uh, as, as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as if they did not rejoice. Now, if you, if you push these too hard and, and you press them too hard and you become far too literal with this and you don't uh, take note of the context, you're not sensitive to those issues and the broader context of Scripture, uh, you'll really push these out of shape. Obviously, uh, Paul is not calling us to a rigorous, ascetic, uh, impersonal, robotic, mechanical kind of life. When he says these kinds of things, it's, it's, uh, it's hyperbole. It's to say it for uh, dramatic effect. It's overstatement for dramatic effect. And basically what he's saying is this. Uh, don't treat your life in this world as if now is ultimate and that's all that matters. Don't treat life now in terms of its relationships, its possessions, its opportunities, and its possibilities as if those are ultimate objectives in and of themselves. We need that admonition. Where we live has been described aptly as the Disneyland of the universe. Living in Southern California is uh, really a privilege and a treat for many of us. I guess some of us would look at it that way. Uh, Certainly, if you evaluate it based upon the weather, you would think that that's certainly the case. Uh, We've lived in plenty of cold places, and um, it's really all that not that nice. People always tell you when you live in cold places, you'll you'll get used to it. Just get out in the weather. Uh, I never found that to be true. Maybe uh, California blood is thinner than uh, the blood from other places. Uh, It's a beautiful place with all kinds of opportunity. But here's the thing. Uh, You know, some people attempt to use this age and the place and the set of circumstances and the access to opportunity and all the gratification that that affords. They attempt to use that as something that just blocks God out of the vision. Sort of a narcotic to numb them as they pass the days. 
Paul was saying that to those who are attempting to get married. Don't overestimate and put too high of a premium on and have unrealistic expectations about marriage that you're going to force yourself to try to fulfill, to find some deep meaning in your marital relationship that is going to sort of numb your senses and replace God. That's the admonition that flows from this. He says, be very wary about this. He says, as you enter into that relationship, it's God-ordained, it's approved, it's fine, it's good, it's holy, it's not sinful. All of those things are wonderful. But he says, just bear in mind that we're passing by. That this is temporary. That's a very important corrective for some who enter into the marriage situation with impossible expectations, thinking that it's going to be a life full of days of utter bliss. Sunshiny days, cotton candy clouds, bluebirds singing on the shoulders. Whether you ever get there or not, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, even if you did, it would be ungodly to use that to replace God with in your thoughts. The admonition here the Apostle Paul gives is not ultimately, uh, the relationship with your spouse is not the ultimate relationship in life. The ultimate relationship in life is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That, to me, is the powerful admonition of 29 through 31. Realize that this age is passing away, that at the end of this age comes the person who really matters. And that's Christ. Now whether you're working on getting marriage this morning or not, I don't know. But I know that this admonition is for all of us. We need to keep our sights focused upon Christ. That sets us up pretty well now for the next principle which emerges from verses 32 to 35. Here the Apostle Paul says, I also want you to consider this, whether you enter into the marriage contract or not. He says, this is what you need to think about. You're called to serve the Lord. Look at verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Drop down to 35. He says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Like I said, we're pretty well set up now to receive this next admonition. If we're looking at Christ, which is what Paul says we ought to be doing, looking unto Him, finding our hope and our expectation and our dreams fulfilled and our hopes fulfilled and the desires fulfilled in Christ, now we're set up to hear this admonition. Looking unto Jesus, he says, you're here to serve the Lord. Whether you're married or unmarried people of God this morning, Paul says to you in verses 32 and 35, your life here and now is for serving the Lord. What does that mean? 
Well, I'm going to give you several applications of that. It means that at minimum, serving the Lord is you go to church on Sunday and worship Him. Absolutely it means at least that. Absolutely serving the Lord means you go to worship Him. There's no service of the Lord apart from His worship. But as I look at this distinction between married and unmarried, I I think that obviously something more is in view because clearly married people and unmarried people both go to church. So I think it means more than that. I think what Paul would say is that we're to have our sights focused on the possibility of serving in official capacities in the church, such as pastor or elder or deacon. I think uh, the Apostle Paul would have in view here the duty of every Christian in serving the Lord to pray for one another, to pray for each other, to build each other up in prayer, to think about and to bear with other people the needs that they have. I think that serving the Lord would also have in view serving the body of Christ in non-official ways. By coming alongside people and supporting them. By encouraging people who are in the midst of trial. By being there for people who are in times of need. Serving people. Just giving them your time. Which, by the way, is something that a lot of people are unwilling to do because they think they just don't have the time to go sit with somebody. Serving the Lord is serving in some support role in the church, helping out, doing the things that people don't even know need to be done in church. See, there's a number of things here that this would include. It says everybody has this obligation, married or unmarried, but now he goes on in verses 33 and 34 and says, not only are you called to serve the Lord, and by the way, that obligation doesn't go away, but he says now if you're married... You have an additional set of duties. Verse 33, the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, that he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried, and the virgin, he says, is concerned about the things of the Lord. She may be holy both in body and spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, that she may please her husband. See that? He says, not only do you have this set of obligations which involves serving the Lord, but if you're married, you have an obligation now to do this. To seek to please your spouse. Now this is a very important admonition. Especially in the context of ministry. I'm sure you've all heard of the situations of a pastor who thought that his ministry was so important that he had divine duty to neglect his family. And he was so involved in the work of the ministry that he was never home, he was never with his wife, he was never with his kids, he never was a blessing to his family. At the end of the day, he absolutely made a shipwreck of his entire life because he was so committed to the ministry. Well, Paul would say that's entirely wrong. He would say... It doesn't matter whether you're a minister or an elder or a key worker in the church. If you're married, you have an obligation to be a blessing to your spouse. And it's no generic blessing that Paul speaks of here. He says you are to be concerned with the things of the world so that you will know how to please your spouse. Husbands and wives, this is an enormous 
obligation that Paul gives you. You are to consider, give thought to, plan ahead for, think about, prepare yourself for, to please your spouse. Paul says this uh, to those who are considering marriage. This is the way you enter into it. This is the mindset that you're to have, is that you're to go into it with uh, this aim. That you're there not to please yourself, but to please your spouse. And he says, all the while you're doing that, you're to aim at pleasing the Lord. What do we take from this admonition? Well, it seems to be very clear. Paul says, if you're thinking about getting married, you need to think about how to balance your duties. You have duties to the Lord, and you have duties to your spouse, and God requires you to fulfill both. Fourthly, as you turn to 36 through 38 here in our passage, there's a fourth admonition that comes to us, and that is that we... uh, if you are aiming at marriage or looking towards marriage and you are a man, uh, you are to seek and secure the permission of your would-to-be bride's father. Let's, let's look at what Paul says here and then we'll draw that out. In verse 36, we're back to the local and specific situation in Corinth. And I, I believe that must be so because... Paul gives directions here to a father. And by the way, this will sound pretty patriarchal. But he basically says to the father, you have the right to let your daughter go get married, and you also have the right to tell her no. Now, in our age, uh, we're aghast at that, really. Everybody knows that it's up to the individual. Uh, But what Paul says here is that Uh, Fathers, uh, you have a tremendous obligation here. And particularly in this situation, he says, uh, you need to think about the cost of the situation. And if you think that by letting her go up and get married in the midst of present distress is okay, you've accounted for it, you've counted up the cost, you've thought it through, and you say, she wants to do it, we're all going into this, eyes wide open. He says, that's great, you're not sinning at all. Then in verse 37, he says, in the contrary situation, he says, if you've thought it through and you've, you're firm in your heart that this is just not the right time, it's not the right situation, it's not the right context, and you say no, Paul says, that's fine too. But then in verse 38, after he repeats both of these scenarios, he says, yeah, the father who doesn't give away his daughter is doing better. And that's where I I kind of would bend back towards the local context situation. Clearly, Paul doesn't say the married, the the celibate, single, non-married life is a better life. So I would say that that has to do with the temporal, local, situational issues that he's dealing with. But the principle that does emerge from the passage here, however, is that the father still has the obligation to see over, to watch over this impending marriage situation. And, and this is something where I would directly speak to the men of this congregation right now. Is to say that you have the obligation. You have the obligation to have a say. Not just that you have the right, 
But that you have the obligation to have a say in who your daughter marries. Because God puts you in authority over that home. We ought not buy into this individualistic, lawless idea that's becoming very prevalent in our day. That's all about what the individuals want. Fathers have an obligation to have a say. Young men, you are called to seek that permission. Something else that I think that's not directly flowing out of this passage, but I would say would fit with it, and that is that if you're even uh, a man and you seek to date another woman, you should go ask her father's permission first. And I know that's really old-fashioned sounding, but that's the way it always used to be. And that used to be really awkward too. When you'd have to go take the the father out for coffee or something and and talk about small talk and sports or whatever till you could finally muster up enough courage to say, hey, would you mind if I took your daughter out on a date? And then the next thing you know, you got to be back by 9.30. You can't go watch anything but the PG movie. You know, you get the whole list of things. And that was great because it made that young man think about the fact that this man loves his daughter and has a tremendous regard for her. If you misbehave, he's going to take care of that. We should probably get back to that. We need to respect the authority that God has placed in the home. And men have been called by God to take that leadership. Well, fifthly and finally, and we're making it here, it looks like the 39 and 40, we have the last principle. We have the last principle that I want us to see. And that is uh, located here in these words of Paul to the widow woman. He gives a general principle that a wife is bound to the husband as long as he lives, and if he dies, she's free to remarry. Uh, He's just reinforcing the principles of marriage that we already talked about at the beginning of the chapter, that you can't break the marriage contract lightly. can't break the marriage contract lightly. But if the spouse dies, he says, it's not binding anymore. It's not binding anymore. He says, this is what's binding. And this is where we move on from advice and pastoral admonition and wisdom to the inspired commandment. He says, you're free to marry, yet only in the Lord. This is a non-negotiable. You're free to marry as a believer, but only in the Lord. Only to another Christian. Only to a fellow believer. Only to somebody who has professed their faith in Jesus Christ. Only to somebody who says, I am under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, and I am under the authority and lordship of that of Christ, mediated through His Word. Only to one who confesses that they trust in Christ for their salvation. Only one who is in a covenantal relationship with God. Only one who has covenanted and would covenant to bring up children of God in His providence would allow. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the context of the church. That's the only kind of person that Christians are free to marry. And I would argue people who are of a like-minded faith. 
You know, it's a tragic situation. And you see it every now and again. The people who grow up, and I'm thinking here in my own Reformed context, the people who grow up in the Reformed church and decide that there's just not enough fish in the sea of the Reformed world. And so they go find a spouse that's not a part of the Reformed church. And then they get married and they have all kinds of problems based upon their differences in faith. Well, the principle here is that we're to marry only in the Lord. And that principle, I believe, would apply even as far as like-mindedness in the faith so that there is peace and unity in the home about what is true. So that that set of principles, that system of truth, will be which governs and guides them in their reflection and thinking upon life and upon how they raise their family and the decisions they make. And so you need to commit this morning, if you're in that situation or you're looking towards that situation of marriage, make it a non-negotiable when you're thinking right now. You may only marry in the Lord. So walk away from our passage this morning. Just a few admonitions that I want us to have firmly in mind as we go away this morning. That's first of all, that marriage should be entered into only after the most careful thought. It's not something that you just go do. Just just go elope real quickly to Vegas or something like that. A marriage is something that, that ought to be entered into after these two couples have really, these young people have thought about it. They don't have to be young people per se. Just thought this morning, or found out this morning of a pastor, a fellow colleague who got married after 50 years old, first time in his life. You don't have to necessarily be young, but the thing of it is, uh, you have to do it with careful consideration. But secondly, you have to do it in an orderly manner. And I take that from the admonitions to the Father here. You know, marriage is a communal thing at the end of the day. It's not just two individuals. They're part of a broader community. It's to be done in an orderly way. It's consistent with the community they are a part of as well. And then thirdly, and I take this right out of the heart of the passage, now the heart of the admonitions in 29 to 35. We all need to bear this in mind, whether we're headed towards marriage or in marriage or decided we're done with marriage or whatever it is. There's one relationship in life which is above all. And that's your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. What Paul would tell you if you're unmarried this morning, he would say, seek to please the Lord. If you're widowed this morning, he would say, seek to please the Lord. If you're married this morning, he would say, seek to please the Lord. And if you don't know Christ this morning, he would certainly say, find the Lord in Jesus Christ. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. For now is the day of salvation. Our calling is to worship and to serve Him and to live before Him by His grace. Let's pray.